Let's open God's Word. Let's open our Bibles probably right in the middle to the book of Psalms and this morning to Psalm 128. Taking a brief hiatus from the Gospel of Luke and we're turning to Psalm 128. As you find that short and sweet psalm, let me welcome those who might be watching the live stream online or the recorded message later on. It's so good to have you attending to God's Word. God's Word enlightens the eyes. It brings life and revives the soul. We encourage you to join us if you're able here in the church for worship, for prayer and fellowship, as well as for the Word. And a special blessing and welcome to uh, some of our members who are home, just home from the hospital, uh, or uh, unable to come. Uh, We miss you and, and pray God's best on you. We'll read Psalm 128, and then we'll introduce it and uh, hear what God has to say. From the English Standard Version, a song of ascents. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. Thus far we read in God's good and holy word, may he bless it to all who hear it, who believe it, and obey it. Amen. Amen. Uh, This uh, message uh, in Psalm 128 really echoes the, the message of the whole of the book of Psalms. If you remember Psalm 1, as it declares who the blessed man is. And Psalm 1 is really the introduction to the entire book. It says, blessed is the man. Declaring how life can and should be when rightly lived under God. And it gave that beautiful imagery. He's like a tree planted by streams of living water that yields its fruit and its season. Its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. The message of the Bible is how to know God and walk rightly with Him. The God who made us and made all things, designed us and gives us purpose and meaning in life. The Psalms, as they take up this theme, and if you're familiar with the Psalms, Psalm 23 or whatever your favorite number is, you know that they also describe the the challenges of living in a broken world, the, the ups and downs of the heart. And in the Psalms, we also see, perhaps more than anywhere else, poetic language describing the the person of God and the power of God. Oh, how we love the book of Psalms. This past week, I spent three days in Indianapolis teaching fellow pastors how to preach from poetic texts in the Bible uh, from the wisdom literature of the Bible in which we find the book of Psalms, the wisdom literature being Job and Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Song of Songs. And the dominant structure there is poetry. 
And when you're going to preach from that, you need to be tuned in to a few particular things. And this morning, since I spent all that time in the Psalms, I'm bringing my closing sermon from that workshop here today. But I've changed it a little bit for this context because you always preach to the audience that's in front of you in a fresh and real way. So the text before us calls us, calls all believers to walk in fear of the Lord. And in that way, we will see the blessings of the Lord. And I've tweaked the the sermon title. It had been fruitfulness through fear because I was talking to servants of the word. This morning, I want to broaden that and talk about blessings through fear. And may the Lord bless this word to each of us today. By way of further introduction, I want to talk as we do in our workshop. I'm not giving the workshop, don't panic. Uh, But I just want to highlight a few things that we had learned along the way. When you're dealing with a poem, uh, you'll need to look at the poetic images. When you're dealing with any text of the Bible, you look at its context. Now, you look at its context by reading what comes before and what comes after. Most of the Psalms are standalone literary units. But it just so happens. Did you notice at the start, it said a song of ascents? And there are several of these if you page back in your Bible. It started back in Psalm 120, a song of ascents. Psalm 121, a song of ascents. And there are many of them right up through Psalm 133, is it? They keep going. It's the 134. And so somewhere along the way, these inspired works of Scripture were gathered by an editor, an inspired editor, and assembled into the book of Psalms. And so we do well to pay attention to its setting sometimes. Some Psalms are just detached and and they're there. But here we have a clue that it's part of a whole. And so we look back, and if you glance at Psalm 126, you'll see that the context there is crying out, For blessing, what's the first word of Psalm 126? When the Lord restored the fortunes of Ion. Or verse 4, 126, restore our fortunes. It was looking for blessing. Psalm 127, immediately before our text, reminds us how those blessings come, that we have to uh, work with the help of the Lord. Blessings come Not simply by toiling, but also by trusting the Lord. And now Psalm 128 fulfills the desires of 126 and confirms the assertions of 127 and speaks of blessing and how it comes. Another thing by way of introduction is when you have a poem, you have to figure out, okay, how many stanzas do I have? What's the the message and structure of a psalm? Is there a refrain like a song? Well, although the ESV gives us three stanzas in the way the modern editors of our generation have arranged it, the original Hebrew does not have separate stanzas, but the publishers here came up with three. The NIV might be different. The King James might be different in the number of stanzas. Where do they put those little white gaps? And we were very clear working with fellow pastors saying, We are the ones in our pastor's study that need to reach into the original languages. We need to look at the text and for ourselves see what the original author was doing. When does his voice change and when does he start speaking about someone else or a different context or the imagery changes? 
and figure out how many stanzas there are. That's what you do with a poem. I see here from my extensive study that there are two stanzas. And I say verses one to four are really all one stanza. As, it, as the author introduces in verse one, then two, three, and four hold together describing the blessings. Verse four, I think, is the summary of the first stanza. It begins, behold, thus, that's summary language, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. It's still poetry. We're not going to turn it into an epistle of Paul, but it seems to be one through four. And then five and six, the language is different. And we'll talk about that. So I see two stanzas. One established is the theme and, and some blessings, and the other one speaks about those blessings. So that's the, the layout. I said the theme is there in the very first verse. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. That's the purpose of this song, this psalm, to put that truth out there and elaborate upon it. What do we mean by blessing? Josh Moody, he's a pastor in Wheaton, Illinois. He's written a small book on the Psalms of Ascent. It's very good. He defines blessing in this context in two ways. He says being blessed is being truly happy because you are living in a state that God declares to be the best way to live. He goes on. Blessing is declarative. Look, that is the best way to live. Blessing is also experiential. Look, that is the happy way to live. This psalm, he says, uh, says that blessing, both the state and experience of being blessed, comes from fearing God. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. So there we go. Let's go on to our first heading. Incentives for fearing the Lord. The rest of the first verse, after that theme, verses 2 through 4, set before us three descriptive promises. And they give us incentives for fearing the Lord. Do you know about incentives? You may hear the term mostly in car commercials. Right now, buy a truck. There's a big incentive to buy a truck. What are they saying? There's, there's a purpose. They'll give you more money if you buy the truck. Because they got to make room for the new vehicles. Perhaps you took a course of economics in college. Can we see a show of hands? No. Uh, who majored in economics? Uh, what are incentives? An incentive is something that motivates you or encourages you to do something. Whether it's in the realm of public policy or in the marketplace or in the home. Do we have any new parents out there? Here's a, here's a tip. I, I've often told this, not just as an economist, but as a father and a pastor to young parents. I say you get less of what you penalize in the home, and you get more of what you subsidize. Clean up your room or else. Clean up your room and then. That's the way we're wired. That's the way we work. We respond to penalties and we respond to incentives. An incentive is a thing that motivates or encourages action. What are the three incentives here? You can see them in verses 2, 3, and then the summary in verse 4. Uh, I've worded them this way. The first incentive says, your labors will be productive. It says in verse 2, you shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. 
Your work is going to bear fruit, it's saying. And you shall be blessed and it shall be well with you. Phew. That is encouragement to get through the nine to five or perhaps you work a later shift or you're in between jobs. There's something here for the one who fears the Lord and walks in his ways that says your labors will be productive. It goes on to say your domestic life will flourish. Why do I say that? Well, it talks in verse three about your wife and your children. Your wife, so it's talking about the domestic life. And it uses some language. And I know some preachers would probably uh, talk for several minutes on vines and several minutes on olive shoots. I'm not going to do that. In the ancient world, you'd have to explore what did that mean in the ancient world. And a fruitful vine is a very robust image. Speaking of intimacy and satisfaction in your home, fruitfulness in your marriage, and it says children will be like wild, like olive shoots, not wild, be like olive shoots around your table. What was the characteristic that perhaps was used there? Well, olive shoots, when you trim off the olives or trim the, the shoots, they keep growing. They grow rapidly. I, you know, I, I don't know what would work for me in my lawn if I said your kids will grow like dandelions. Does that, does that ring a bell then? It's saying something about our domestic life and its flourishing. It's a beautiful picture. And the third incentive is your posterity will proliferate. I'm sold. Those incentives. Where do I go to buy? I'll, I, I want those. I want that kind of blessing. Well, we need to further, if we're looking at these incentives, we need to understand the way they're presented to us. Behind this imagery, do we see what's being done here? First, the imagery here is concrete and concentric. What do I mean by concrete? It speaks of familiar things, work, wife, children. And it's arranged in these concentric circles. It begins with your hands, then your spouse, then your family. It moves outward. Well, there's no white picket fence in this ancient picture, the psalmist is describing a house, a home, with pleasant occupants and environs for the God-fearing laborer to come home to. He's speaking, this is it, he's speaking of the whole of life. Work, home, leisure, legacy, it's all there. And the reader is invited to be blessed in all of life by fearing the Lord and walking in his ways. John Calvin helps us here too, not just simply to look at wife, how many kids, how big a house. John Calvin says, we must develop better and deeper concepts of happiness than those held by the world, which makes a happy life consist in ease, not labor, honors, not home, and great wealth, not simply fruit and spiritual fruit at that. He says we need to have better and deeper concepts of happiness. And when I shared that in my final sermon with the preachers, trying to give a model of the, how to handle the text, but also for their good, I'm saying, brothers, don't let people sh read this in a shallow way. Oh, good, I'm going to get married. Oh, good, I'm going to have kids. Those are pictures and images. And often the blessing is something deeper and richer. 
I've known godly single people. I've known godly couples who are physically childless, but spiritually blessed. Say more about that in just a minute. So the imagery is concrete and concentric. It refers to the whole of life. But also notice, it is the language of promise. It's the language of promise. You see the word will a couple of times and the word shall in verse 4 in the great summary. I'm not so much a grammarian that I'm going to talk about the great difference between will and shall. We get different answers from lawyers. But it's the language of promise, isn't it? These are promised blessings from the Lord, present and future. Present realities are connected to these promises. Notice, too, that it says the man should be working now and not idle as he awaits the eating of the fruit of his labors. Make sure you understand this language of promise. It tells us that we may not yet have the blessing, but we do have the promise. The very promise of God. And there's a certain degree of blessing that even if we lack the corporal things at the present, we have the promise of God in our hand. We can, as one Puritan says, having the promise in our hand, relinquish the rest of our care and worry to God. Isn't there a blessing? Even if the domestic life is... is is not yet what it could be, we can relinquish the rest of our care and worry to God. Now, speaking of these promises about our material blessing, I'll just remind you one uh, promise and warning in Hebrews, Hebrews 13, 5, about material things. He says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he, God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And beyond material things, what about the godly believer awaiting a spouse or without children? Again, let's say something before we move on. And here I was much helped by the Scottish Puritan David Dixon. He has a commentary on the Psalms. It's still available. He believes, quote, The godly person shall not lack succession if God see it good for them. Or... If not children of their body, then followers of their faith and footsteps in piety when they've been instrumental to convert someone else. You may have spiritual children or community-wide influence, and your legacy may not be of your own loins. It may be of your life more broadly. This is why it was significant to hear what Calvin says. We Christians, we need deeper and more spiritual understandings of happiness and good and what's right and what should please us. Don't buy the message of the world. Hear the scriptures and look for these things. Gain that better and deeper concept. In a few minutes, I'll tell you about Jesus Christ. He feared God and walked in his ways. Jesus did not have a wife and did not have physical children. But this psalm is fulfilled in him. We'll get to that. But secondly, we want to look at these benedictions, verses 5 and 6. 
The voice of the second stanza is one of benediction, wishing the promised blessings upon the one who seeks to walk reverently in the ways of the Lord. These, these benedictions move uh, from the, this starting bless you, singular, something personal. Then they move to seeing blessing upon um, uh, God's people of Jerusalem. And they end on this blessing extended to one's posterity, your children's children, down in verse 6. Again, this kind of concentric circles. Blessings for you and your whole life and beyond. Now that I'm a grandfather, I'm looking forward to a first birthday next month of the oldest grandchild. Um, I'm thinking more in generational terms. I have for years been praying for my grandchildren even before kids were married or babies were born. You can do that. You can pray for your grandchildren, or you can pray for the future of the church. You can pray for many things in the future. You can't pray that God would change the past, but we can pray about the present and the future. Here, the psalmist is not just praying, but he's, he's speaking a benediction. It's a pronouncement of truth and reality that's more than just a prayer, and it's not just a wish. That's why I want to call it a benediction. It's like what we pray or say at the end of a service. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. It's a declaration of truth that connects with us because we believe it and we're claiming those promises. So there's a present blessing and a a lasting effect of a benediction. So the psalmist gives these benedictions. Let's point out a couple of things about them. These benedictions have as their source our covenant Lord. Our covenant Lord, that's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, who's named here in verse 1. He is the sovereign source of every good, of every reward. John Calvin went on to say, Whoever true belie- whenever true believers meet with any prosperous events in the course of their life. It is the effect of the divine blessing. And that's consistent with what you read across the Psalms. Remember how Psalms kind of give this picture of the believer's life, picture of the believer's God. Look at a couple samples here. We've got more coming up, but just here that the source of our blessing is God. Psalm 34 verses 8 and 9. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. Psalm 34. He's the source of blessings to those who fear. Psalm 112 begins with these words. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house and his righteousness endures forever. Hey, those are themes we've just been reading. There's some connection between Psalm 112 as it begins in Psalm 128. It doubles down on the truth. Real blessings, these blessings come from God. From a sovereign God who answers particularly and personally in the lives of believers. He does what is good for you and good for his glory. That's why not every believer 
as the same number of children or the same experiences, etc. But we have the same source. Next, we see that this psalm, it makes references, did you see that? From Zion, prosperity of Jerusalem, and then peace be upon Israel. When it's talking about the peace and prosperity of Jerusalem, the text is pointing us to the way God works in the world. The text is pointing to the context of these blessings. And I would say God's blessings flow to us through the church in many ways. The church is front and center in the Lord's provision of blessing to believers. In preaching to pastors, I said, don't forget that the church is not... uh, 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 anything less than a wonderful place where blessings flow. I point that out, this, this call to see our blessings in the context of Jerusalem and Israel, those spiritual terms. Because most modern evangelicalism manifests itself in a sad preference just for personal spirituality and individual spiritual growth. I'm gonna grow I'm going to go where I can get fed. And it's so introverted. It's kind of like a spiritual narcissism in some cases. Yet the language of Psalm 128 and all of the Psalms points us to the desire of well-being in the context of the body of believers. The Lord bless you from Zion. That spiritual name for God's people of old. The spiritual name for the place where people are gathered may you as you're blessed and eat the fruit of your labors and your have your domestic happiness may you also see the blessing of jerusalem why what's the connection as long as i'm blessed why why should i care about jerusalem well because god's blessings flow to the community of his people that's important when you see the old testament say pray for the peace of jerusalem We need to pray for peace in God's kingdom, in the church, in my church. There's another Old Testament commentator named Derek Kidner. He says this, If piety can be too individualistic and a family too self-contained, this final stanza of Psalm 128, he says, takes care of both of these dangers. Zion, where the faithful gather, is where you can expect to find blessing and your family's future is bound up in Zion's welfare. So, God's blessings to the church are seen to distill upon all its members. If the first stanza sets forth incentives for walking in fear of the Lord and the second shows us something of their nature, what's left to see or do here? The question is, will you fear the Lord? And walk in his ways. Who then will fear the Lord? Well, as we're on our final heading, let's first ask some questions. What does it mean for a believer to fear the Lord? It's far more than this idea of being scared or dread. It has those dimensions. But it's closer to, as I've I've talked and preached before many times here, when the Bible says fear the Lord, it's closer to a childlike awe and love for a father. We read earlier Psalm 103, verse 13, and it began with the word as. That helps with this definition. Psalm 103, 13 says, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord 
shows compassion to those who fear him. Fear in the context of fatherhood. Sadly, yes, in our culture, some kids grow up afraid of their father because of abuse. Because of a lack of any loving relationship. That's so sad and that's not right. But with God, our relationship as his children is is filial, it's childlike. And we revere him. We're aware of his power, but we're also aware of his love and his care. So that's what fear of the Lord points us to. Theologian John Murray has a famous definition that's worth remembering. The fear of God is the soul of godliness. You're a Christian, you want to be Christ-like? You're a Christian, you want to be godly? John Murray says, and I double down, the fear of God is the soul of godliness. And he gets that because he's read his Bible. But some of you know I've done my dissertation on the fear of the Lord. It's a big topic of mine. I've got to give you something more. I've recently discovered a wonderful definition. It comes from Eugene Peterson, of all people. And he says this. It's a whole paragraph. And I may get carried away, but it's richly written. And it defines for us the fear of the Lord. Listen, listen, listen. And he starts out with a great attention getter. He says, the Bible isn't interested in whether we believe in God or not. It assumes that everyone more or less does. He says, what it is interested in is the response that we will have to God. Will we let God be as he is, majestic and holy, vast and wondrous, or... Will we always be trying to whittle him down to the size of our small minds, insisting on confining him within the boundaries we are comfortable with? Do we refuse to think of him other than in images that are convenient to our lifestyle? Well, then, we're not dealing with the God of the Bible, the God of creation, and the Christ of the cross, but with, he says, a dime store reproduction of something made in our own image. He goes on, and this is the best part. To guard against all such blasphemous chumminess with the Almighty, the Bible talks, Old and New Testament talks of the fear of the Lord, not to scare us, but to bring us to awesome attention before the overwhelming grandeur of God. To shut up our whining and chattering and to stop our running and fidgeting so that we can really see him as he is and listen to him as he speaks. As he speaks his merciful, life-changing words of forgiveness and hope. That's why the Bible talks About the fear of the Lord. Not just faith in God, but the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is is faith that is seriously wide awake to the awe, sovereignty, and majesty of the Lord. The very Lord who shows us mercy, grace, and love in Christ. As we were working in the Psalms, it's part of the wisdom literature. I took time to point out to the men with me that this is the theme throughout the wisdom books of the Bible. It's a theme of Psalms, really. It's one of the grand themes. Do you know the fear of the Lord is discussed more than 60 times in the Psalms? 
I brought with me a list of, oh, just uh, 14 important texts. I'm running out of time, so I'm only going to read three of these. But it's throughout the text, the fear of the Lord. What does that tell you alone? It's dominant presence. Psalm 2, the first psalm where it's mentioned, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Psalm 2, verse 11, it's right near the end. Or Psalm 19, many of us know that as it speaks of creation and the word of God. Psalm 19, verse 9, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. It's not just Old Testament. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Uh, We already quoted from Psalm 34, verse 7 says, The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. And then it goes on to mention fear twice more. Uh, Skipping ahead, we already looked at Psalm 103. How about Psalm 119, verse 74? Those who fear you shall see me and rejoicing because I have hoped in your word. Your fear of the Lord is going to be part of a witness to the Lord. In the last reference, 147.11, But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. And again, Hebrew parallelism, those who fear him is in parallel, not with, I'm scared. No, those who fear him is in parallel, after the comma, in those who hope in his steadfast love. It's a loving reverential awe, respect, fear, and love in return. The other books of the wisdom literature, the book of Proverbs, um, fear of the Lord is at the heart of Proverbs. You should know that, right? Chapter 1, verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But it's all throughout the book of Proverbs, the fear of the Lord. It's connected with wisdom. How about the book of Job? That's kind of enigmatic. It's all about suffering, right? Well, I say, and I've done this in previous workshops, the heart of the plot line of the book of Job is the fear of the Lord. Check it out for yourselves. Verse 1, chapter 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. What's the main thing we're told about the main character of the whole book? He feared the Lord. You know, plot line, sometimes there's a turn. We know the evil one comes to try to turn it in verse 9. Then Satan answered the Lord and said this. Do you remember his question? Does Job fear God for no reason? The book is a test. Job knew about God and liked God, but did Job fear God? Did Job, remember that long definition, did Job Whittle God down, or did Job let God be the Lord? Let God be the boss, the one who's in charge? Or did Job only like God when Job got what Job wanted? Oh, if only modern day evangelicals would understand that biblical faith includes at the heart of godliness the fear of God. Your faith isn't really about you. It's about a right response to the Holy One. One more wisdom literature book, then we're done. The Climax of Ecclesiastes, another enigmatic book. We're not sure what to make of the vanity and the times and the seasons and all those things under the sun. 
Go with Ecclesiastes, check out how it ends. Jot this down, look it up. Chapter 12, verse 13. The end of the matter. There's a clue. The Bible is very helpful. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. So you see, it's not just Psalm 128. It's not just the book of Psalms. It's the heart of the wisdom literature at the heart of the Bible. To educate us, to educate our youth, our children. What does it mean to know God, to to have faith in him, to trust him, and to hope in him? It includes letting God be God. The fear of the Lord. No whittling. So how does one fear the Lord? There's a couple of examples we can point to very quickly. One is Father Abraham. One is Father Abraham. Abraham is the model of faith, right? Romans 4 points to Abraham. He's the model of faith. How was Abraham's faith confirmed and tested? Do you remember the story of Genesis 22? We're working quickly here. He was called to sacrifice his son Isaac. So he takes Isaac up on the place of sacrifice. He's got the wood. He's got a knife. He's got the fire. And he's got his son. His son even said, where's the animal, Dad? God will provide. He binds his son, lays him on the wood, has the fire at hand, raises the knife. And Genesis 22 tells us what happens. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am, Lord. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God. Seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Anyone here have faith in God? I hope it's faith that also fears God. And if God calls you to something hard, he won't call you to this. But if he calls you to something hard, he is Lord. The fear of the Lord. Abraham was commended to it. Of course, the greatest example of the one who feared the Lord and walked in his ways is the incarnate son, Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ. He is, two words, the proof of Psalm 128 and these promises. He's the proof of it, and he's the fulfillment of it. Let me connect the dots for you. We'll do it really quickly. Jesus embodied the fear of the Lord. That's that first little arrow point. Jesus embodied the fear of the Lord. According to Isaiah 11, you know that description, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. It's talking about the Messiah. Isaiah 11 describes him as one upon whom the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, and the spirit of the knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Jesus embodied the fear of the Lord and walked in his ways. No no argument there. Second way, Jesus is the proof and fulfillment. He enjoyed the fruit of his redemptive work. What was promised to you and me? We'll eat the fruit of the labor of our hands. It shall be blessed. It shall be well with us. You'll eat. It'll be fruitful. A little shalom. Jesus enjoyed the fruit of his redemptive work. His main work was the work of the cross. Isaiah spoke of the work of the cross in what chapter? Isaiah 53. If you've read it, you've also read verse 10. 
Verse 10, Isaiah 53, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for for guilt. He shall see his offspring, says Isaiah. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Jesus enjoyed the fruit of his redemptive work. Maybe you've never thought of him that way. But if Psalm 128 is true for one who fears the Lord, walks his ways, it's got to be true of Jesus. And it is. Jesus himself said in John 17, 4, in his high priestly prayer, I have glorified you on earth, Father, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. He enjoyed the fruit of his redemptive work. But you know, Pastor, Psalm 128 also talks about kids. We know Jesus didn't have any kids. What's going on? Jesus is the proof and fulfillment of Psalm 128 in that he enjoyed his spiritual posterity. And they are even called children. Hebrews chapter 2. Hear me. For it was fitting that he, Jesus, for whom and by whom all... It's fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation, that's Jesus, perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. So there's the brotherhood, but it goes on. I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. We're the children, as it were, of Christ's labors. We could go on to parallel images in, in Ephesians. Christ is the, bro- the husband, the bridegroom, to the bride who is the church. And, and out of that union comes generation and generation of those who have faith in Christ. Behind all these fulfillments of Jesus was this thought articulated by a man named George Horn. It's a complex but short sentence about Jesus. Blessed above all sons of men and author of blessing to them all was the man Christ Jesus because above them all and for them all he feared, he loved, and he obeyed. Because of Jesus, these benedictions are ours. Friends, God has provided the lamb for us. He meets our faith. He calls us to walk in the fear of the Lord and receive every blessing. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this picture in the Psalms of blessings through fear. We thank you for an understanding of the depth and richness of Hebrew poetry in the Psalms. But all the more, Father, we are thankful for the Lord Jesus Christ who fulfills Scripture. He's he's not only the model for all believers, he's the one who makes it possible for us to believe, for us to have faith, and for us to receive the promises. Father, may each one hearing your word this morning Know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. May they bow to him and call upon him to be right with you through him. And may each of us who trust in Christ 
Find your blessings in our labors, in our domestic settings, and in our posterity. May it all be to your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.